Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots, taxpayers, and good, peace-loving Americans to your one-way ticket out of the Twilight Zone. This is the Conservative Review Podcast, your one and only source of independent conservative news and views on what truly matters to your life, to your communities, and to the future of the Republic. We had a great show yesterday with Ann Corcoran, uh, giving you guys, you guys, your marching orders. You always ask me what you can do. Well, you know what you can do. You can go and demand from your county officials and your governor that they do not transform, fundamentally transform your community with Middle Eastern refugees on top of record high legal immigration and illegal immigration from the border. Now, speaking of immigration, I do want to get to some tax and spending issues, some health care legislation. There's a lot of end of year dangerous pieces of legislation, hearings, markups going on, committee level, floor level that we originally started conservative review to monitor this stuff, but I just don't have enough of a staff to do this. And that's part of the problem. And certainly we can't count on anyone else in this uh, morally and intellectually bankrupt movement movement to uh, monitor this stuff. But what's interesting is on the same day, the House is considering a bill to grant amnesty a pathway to citizenship green cards to 1.5 million illegal alien slave labor agricultural workers. And not to be outdone, Senate Republicans, as I warned um, earlier this week, last week, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they are right now, as we speak, marking up S-2641. This is the bill to bring in an unlimited number of Syrians and Iraqis and not count against the refugee caps. So that's kind of where we are, you know, Democrats and Republicans pushing ag amnesty, Republicans pushing more refugees. Which brings me to a question I want to to ask you guys today. I want you guys to take out a spreadsheet, piece of paper, and do three things on it. I mainly want to focus on the third, but let me just go through two of them. Go through a list of Trump's cabinet officials or cabinet equivalent officials, like chief of staff, and ask yourselves, how many support our values fundamentally? Fundamentally support the president's campaign promises on the critical issues of our time. National security, homeland security, sovereignty, immigration, crime, health care, spending, free markets, traditional values, true traditional values. How many? I could name Russ Vote, the somewhat obscure acting OMB director that you know most people haven't heard of. I have a trouble really thinking of anyone else. Um, Ken Cuccinelli is a good guy, but he's deputy uh, secretary of Homeland Security. He's not in the cabinet. How many? Take out another sheet, and we'll get to this if we have time, a continuation of yesterday's discussion on Republican governors agreeing to refugee resettlement. How many Republican governors out of the 27, 28 or so that there are How many share our values on those aforementioned issues? One. Then take a look at how many senators share our values and how many will actually push for it 
on the important pieces of legislation. And then if you get really ambitious, maybe you could take out a list of Republican House members, 190 or so of them, and see how many share our values. Chip Roy and Chip Roy and Andy Biggs, Paul Gosar. You could count them on your hands. Which leads me to the final question that I want to frame today's show around this thesis. And send me your notes, your suggestions. dharwitz at blazemedia.com is the email. Um, at rmconservative is my Twitter feed. What issues have conservatives or Republicans conserved? Name me an issue that we've conserved. Because if you look at any measure, go down the line of issues, you know, Republicans are supporting refugee resettlement just like the Democrats. Republicans are supporting amnesty just like the Democrats. Even after Trump, we barely have a couple of miles of replacement wall, and we have deportations have plummeted while sanctuary cities have skyrocketed with no punishment for those politicians. As we're speaking now, we'll have more tomorrow, but um, and, and certainly by the time you hear this, but ICE is conducting a conference call. They're announcing their end-of-year results, um, enforcement operations, and they will show that the numbers actually went down under this administration. As we mentioned, on any measure, Middle Eastern immigration, it might not be on the highest plateau of the last year of Obama, but it's roughly tracking with the high end of the last decade. The legal immigration numbers, yes, we're celebrating that they're down the last three months, but they're only down the last three months after a record high for about nine months that we should never have had under this administration, and which we're going to have again if we continue to allow the courts to screw with us. So that's with that. Under what measure are we changing things? Um, you look at national security priorities. What has conservatism stood for the last two decades? Social work in a combat zone in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I mean, this is what we bled for during those eight years of Bush. We lost a generation of conservatism because of the Iraq war, which wasn't a war, which got us nothing, nothing but 100,000 Afghani immigrants, 250,000, it's on my chart, Iraqis, God knows how many Somalis since then, 100,000 or so, many, many other places, almost 200,000 from Bangladesh, over 200,000 from Pakistan, Egypt, Turkey, apiece. What are we conserving? You know, here we have the one thing where it's pretty bipartisan when you get down to the citizen level, the Afghanistan war. Everyone recognizes that it's a corrupt joke of us training a mythical Islamic Afghani military. And... I guarantee you, if you would pull Republicans and Democrats alike, they'd say, let's end this. Trump wanted to end it, but there was no movement behind him. And he gave in to the corrupt 
military industrial complex, which is leading our national security astray. And here you have, of all publications, Washington Post does the story of the decade on Afghanistan. And tomorrow, I mean this week, they're going to vote on the NDAA giving $71.5 billion for overseas contingency operations, a.k.a. nation building, and, and among other places in Afghanistan. President Trump tweets out. Okay? Trump tweets out the following earlier this morning. Wow. All of our priorities have been made into the final NDA. Pay raise for our troops. Rebuilding our military. Paid parental leave. Border security and space force. Congress, don't delay this anymore. I will sign this historic defense legislation immediately. There's nothing historic about it. And then Ivanka, like, subtweets in, Wow, art of the deal, baby. This is the same old crap. SOC. It's not about the spending figures, it's about the policies. That's for an appropriation bill. This is an authorization bill. Paid parental leave. That's not the issue. Oh, Democrats wanted to put in even worse stuff. But, but that's a straw man. You're the president. You should be able to veto that. You have major leverage. Our founders thought the president, uh, George Mason, was concerned the president would, would be like a king because of the veto power. Here we are, three years into this administration. When the president promised from day one to shut off things like the Saudi military training program and to, to arm our soldiers on military bases, those are the issues that need to be dealt with in the NDAA and nothing. Even after Pensacola, the president's like, I mean, this has been the flaw about the president. He says good things, but then when it comes to the two or three, and there's very few pieces of leverage that he has as a legislative vehicle, he praises the poison. I mean, he did this earlier this year, signing the bill that that allowed illegal aliens to come forward and sponsor other illegal alien kids to be trafficked by the cartels, and then as a reward, get amnesty, and ICE can't deport them. He signed that in February. He could have just kicked the can down with a CR another couple of weeks, and you had the March numbers, which were going to come out then, or the February numbers going to come out in March, and it showed a crisis. He would have been proven right. He would have had the leverage to fight on the border wall, and he gave it up. And now, now, they're on the verge of signing another crazy bill, budget bill, and a district judge in El Paso just said, you're not allowed to build the wall. And they're like, we'll appeal the decision rather than setting it aside. So we're going to get nothing. We're going to get nothing. But th th this, this is where they are amidst a time that tries men's souls, amidst a time where our country is being flooded with Middle Easterners. The jails are being opened of domestic criminals. We have a flood of criminal cartel drugs and transnational gangs in sanctuary cities. And they're stripping our gun rights. Oh, but don't worry, this administration bans guns, gun stocks, bump stocks. There's one other thing they did on guns I forgot. Nothing positive. What, have we, what are we preserving? What are we preserving? You know, I want you guys to take a listen to this quote from Mitch McConnell's press conference yesterday. Um, 
talking about the budget bill. Take a listen. We hope to be able to process the government uh, funding bills. Um, it's still not quite worked out, but with cooperation, assuming we get uh, a couple of minibuses from the House, I think there's a, a decent chance that we could finish that up and not have to do yet another CR. <laughs> We're going to pass some minibus bills, and we'll have a process, and we'll hold some closure votes. I mean, he's like the parliamentarian or something. Here you have Pelosi and Schumer that are like, these are not our values. God wants refugees. God wants illegal aliens. God wants criminals. God wants gun control. This is the moral thing to do. This is the right thing to do. And what's the equal and opposing force on the other side? A Mitch McConnell turtle shoot, huh? You know, we're going to hold some votes and we'll see what passes and we hope to get a budget bill. Well, hey, Mitch, what do you believe? What do you want in that budget bill? You want a budget bill passed? Well, reflecting which values? I mean, this is the problem. We have one party. What are we conserving? Oh, Daniel, no, 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 you don't understand. We have to be racially conscious. So therefore, we have to be for jailbreak. We have to be for refugees, but only of a certain ilk, of course. They have to be from the Middle East somehow, um, which I never understood that. Um, there's that. We got to have open borders, sanctuary cities, um, the homosexual agenda, the transgender agenda. No, th these are, Daniel, these are tough identity issues. No, but we're fiscal conservatives. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um... <laughs> the CBO just came out with um, data on the first two months of this fiscal year, fiscal year 2020, which is October and November. The budget deficit just for the first two months is $342 billion, okay? This is one-sixth uh, of the year. That's like almost on par for a $2 trillion deficit. Now, it might not wind up being that. Maybe it'll be one and a half, but it's insane. It is more than at the depth of the worst recession in 2009 under Obama and the Porculus bill. And it's not because receipts are down. Tax revenue was up slightly, $12 billion over this time last year. But spending was up $49 billion over last year. Spending is up. So the deficit is now up 12% over last year which at this time last year, we were lamenting it being up from the previous year. As I noted before, spending for the first 33 months of the Trump administration is 13% higher in absolute terms than the first 33 months of um, the Obama administration. Here's the numbers I got here. The federal government has spent roughly $11.76 during so far, this administration. That's through October. If you take the equivalent first 33 months of the Obama administration, it's 10.3 trillion. But now, to be fair, if you adjust for inflation, it's probably not 13% more. It's probably more like 3, 4% more. But here's the deal. That was when we had 10% unemployment. We had people massively on food stamps and unemployment benefits. Here we have record low post-World War II unemployment at 4 point, um, at 3.5%. Um, 
This would have been the time to get people off of welfare when they had control of all three branches for the first two years. Second year, they did nothing with budget reconciliation. They could have done it without a filibuster. They promised to do it, by the way, at their annual retreat in 2018. Didn't do it. And here we are. Record spending on everything. Under Republicans. More than under Obama. What are we preserving? What is it we're preserving? You go down the CBO report here. And they note. Obviously, you have Social Security and Medicare, but you know what the biggies are? Medicaid spending is up 9% over last year. 9%. Because Republicans now support Medicaid just as passionately as Democrats. I mean, you remember that debate in 2017 over repealing Obamacare. Oh, no, no, no. It's just the tax increases of Obamacare and the the individual mandate. Oh, but the Medicaid. Oh, yeah, we got to keep that bacon flowing. So United Health is reporting a record, record, um, something like $260 billion in, in revenue. And a big part of that is Medicare and Medicaid. It's a joke. It's enriching them so they can get market share of a monopoly to price gouge the, the rest of us. That's a whole nother thing. Democrats are voting on this um, lowering prescription drug price bill. Uh, allowing Medicare to directly negotiate with drug manufacturers. See, here's the the classic thing. What Democrats do is they go and grant a monopoly and destroy the market and increase prices. It could be education, it could be um, healthcare, it could be agriculture, food, whatever it is. And then they come in with like these meat cleaver or hatchet, they take a hatchet to them with regulations all it's going to do is ensure that so many drugs cannot come to market because they can't be produced through R&D and will get, you know, less life-saving medications. Um, you know, the way to deal with this is to cut out the middleman in healthcare and, and, and deregulation. Deregulation, but at the same time, cut out the middleman and endless government subsidies, which give them the monop- monopoly. And that's where you bring in market forces. Now, obviously, defense spending is up 7% too. But for what? For what? I, ironically, both parties are pretty similar. That's why they're agreeing on the NDAA for all the talk. Our border, the cartels crossover. We bring in hundreds of thousands of Chinese to spy on us, sucking away our, our intellectual property, R&D. We bring Saudis to our bases. We bring 2.3 million Middle Easterners on green cards since 9-11. Oh, but here's some military hardware. And then as as Colonel Dan Steiner says on the show very often, it's the army is often the the, the land services are trying to justify their budgets when really what we need to do is maintain our naval and and air force superiority. Not to say we don't need an army at all, but but. Rather than getting involved on these ground in these ground conflicts with tribal civil wars that have nothing to do with us, we need to p- protect the airways and the shipping lanes. And if you did that, we could do so much more for so much cheaper. Stop throwing money at it. I'm sick of it. It's a policy problem. It's a values problem. It's a focus problem. It's a military general's problem. It's a strategic problem. It's not a money problem. Stop defining pro-military, pro-defense positions 
based on a yardstick of how much money you throw at it. And then, of course, outlays for the Department of Education increased by 25% this year. Largely because of increased subsidy costs for federal student loans. Increase the subsidies, increase the tuition. Increase the subsidies, increase the tuition. Tuition has gone up about 500% since 1980. Commensurate with subsidies that have gone up about 500%. So, there you go. Same thing we do to healthcare, we do to education. Under Republicans, what is it we are conserving? No, Daniel. Um, we're, we're conserving uh, uh, traditional values. Okay. So Chris Stewart, the Utah Republican, there's something with Utah there, um, on the one of the judiciary subcommittees, is pushing for an alternative. <laughs> this is a classic Republican shtick an alternative LGBTQFU bill, okay? So basically, they're saying, look, you know, the country supports transgenders. Like, I mean, it's a juggernaut. There's nothing we can do about it. So we need this alternative. So what they do is they say, this is going to protect religious liberty. But what they do is they codify the licentious sexual alphabet soup into civil rights, albeit then right in there, a religious protection. So it's like, hey, we're all Sodom and Gomorrah, but please, can you like, like, please don't tase me, bro. Whereas under current law, it's not in there at all. Jeez. And a bunch of these uh, social conservatives are pushing it. Unbelievable. One thing after another. But what do we have on the docket today? What do we have on the docket today? So, um... Again, I have an article just came out as I'm on there. GOP governors betraying constituents by pushing refugee resettlement. Um, we'll get to that. But I want to just talk briefly about another bill the House is voting on today. Um, the Farm Modern Workforce Modernization Act. Uh, this is, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So as we've reported before, um, you know, we often view illegal immigration as primarily an urban problem, New York, Chicago, L.A. But really, the most pernicious aspect of illegal immigration is the rural illegal immigrants that are brought there from the agricultural interests. And, you know, they want cheap labor. Now, see, look, I get it that you want cheap labor. I understand it. But let, let's say I come up with some sort of system that determines that the best way to bring in the cheapest labor you can get, slave labor, are bringing in the Hutus and the Tutsis from Rwanda to while they're like axing each other to work on the farms. Well, dude, you might get cheap labor out of that, but you're going to get a lot of other things out of that too. And as we've noted, we brought in the cultural problems. The drug cartels single-handedly have a, a, a pipeline into all of our rural counties because they blend in. Normally, they, they would stick out and you know, it would be easier, easy to break up their drug trafficking networks. But as DA officials always tell me, that they, they blend in because of the agricultural workers now. They're all over the place. So we have a bill in the House and frankly, I didn't spend much time on this because there's a lot of things the House Democrats do that aren't going to go anywhere. So I got to just, you know, prioritize my time. But 
This bill grants amnesty to 1.5 million agricultural workers that are here currently illegally and or anyone who claims to be. So they, they did this before 1986 and 64% were fraudulent. Because as I say all the time, once you do an amnesty, albeit limited to certain conditions, it's a joke. It's a carte blanche amnesty. You already see the courts are, are creating amnesty even when the law is that they have to be deported. So certainly if you write into the base statute that they have a, a presumptive right to present a case that they might be an ag worker, so you're going to have a lot of non-ag workers like, you know, urban illegal alien cab drivers, illegal alien construction workers, all sorts of people are going to get in on this. So massive amnesty. And, and, and again, I find it funny, like these companies, I get it. You want to pay them dirt. I, I understand it. But why should we have to be on the hook for their well, their welfare, their anchor babies, their drunk driving, their child sex crimes, their um, drug trafficking, their gang membership? Because you want an extra five cents for tomatoes. But what it does is it then it prospectively reorients the H-2A program. Those are that's the legal non-immigrant agricultural visa system. And it basically says right now they're non-immigrant visas. So so technically they cannot get a green card. Um, now, again, a lot of them wind up having kids and they're anchor babies. And that that's a whole nother problem. But. What this bill does is it basically invites them in and says, if you work for, depending on who you are, eight or 10 years in, in an agricultural business, then you can get a green card. So it's a way of, it's like indentured servitude, trading American citizenship for special interest labor. And, you know, one of the important things that, that, you know, Neil Monroe did a great job at Breitbart. You check out his writing on this. He's really done a good job um, researching this from an agricultural standpoint. One of the things people forget, so there's a whole debate over wages. Um, you know, Americans would do this, but do this for you know higher wages and things like that. But there's a there's a broader issue that that a lot of people are missing, and Neil Monroe made this case very well. And that is the bill is called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. But ironically, what it's doing is the exact opposite. It's bringing back our farming to the 1800s because what you find, and he, and he really goes through this, we'll link to this in show notes, in the Netherlands, in Australia, in Israel, among a couple places, they've really moved a lot of this work to mechanized um, uh, processes instead of manual labor. Because part of what gives an industry a kick in the pants to modernize is prohibitive costs. But what, what, what this bill does is in perpetuity until the end of times creates an endless seamless flow of dangling citizenship and green cards to incentivize the third world to come and bring all of its problems into our rural areas. But then also from an agricultural standpoint, they're never going to feel the need to modernize. I mean, it's the same thing we talk about in healthcare, education. It's government subsidized, regulated, manipulated, distorted. So it's all a government system. It's not all the innovation you find in electronics and, and you know areas of the economy that aren't aren't uh, distorted. Um, you know, you're you're not going to get that innovation, and. You know, a lot of people will say, well, you know, we don't want um, 
you know, legal aliens because we want Americans to have higher wages. But I would argue an even more fundamental argument here. I'd posit a more fundamental argument that when it comes to farming, I don't even care about American wages. I'd say we would be on our way to mechanizing more things. And, you, you know, that's how you produce more for less and make everyone happy. But it's not, as Adam Smith would say, the natural order of things. It's not free market to invite the third world where you would never do that culturally and security wise, but you do it for cheap labor. It makes no sense. But you might think, all right, Daniel, yeah, the House Democrats, they're going to be doing it. No, 25 Republicans co-sponsored. Now, I don't know if that means that all the Republicans that supported our co-sponsors and there won't be any more, or if that's just the tip of the iceberg. But there's just as many Republican co-sponsors as Democrat co-sponsors. This is going to pass. We'll see how many Republicans vote for it. Now, I don't think it's a live fire drill here that it's going to become law. But there is one Republican, Dan Newhouse, a rhino from Washington, who's a co-sponsor, who claims Trump supports this. Now, I don't know if that's true, but what I do know is that, you know, they put out what's called a SAP, a statement of administration policy, a warning um, that they're going to issue a veto, a veto threat on legislation they don't like. For example, um, either today or tomorrow, they're going to vote on this stupid uh, drug pricing bill. And OMB put out a SAP warning uh, that they're going to veto it. No such um, SAP has been issued on this farm amnesty bill. Again, there's problems in this administration. It's problems with the president. That's what they're doing. Th there is no difference between Republicans and Democrats. And then, you know, pursuant to our discussion yesterday on refugees, I have an article that just came out on Doug Ducey, Doug Duncey, the Republican governor of Arizona. Arizona is a state where Scalia said they, you know, in his famous dissent in U.S. v. Arizona, or Arizona v. U.S., that they bear the brunt of the burden of illegal immigration. They've had endless Central Americans streaming in. But that's not enough to Doug Ducey. Doug Ducey wants to bring in more refugees. You look at a place like Glendale, Arizona. It's not even Phoenix. Mid-sized city that's being fundamentally transformed. So this is not New York City here. Glendale, Arizona has taken in, by my count, over the last four years, 2,700 refugees. And almost all of them are from the most primitive, violent, volatile cultures you could imagine. I, 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 here, let me just see some numbers here. 241 from Iraq, 370 um, from Somalia. No, 486 from Somalia. Roughly as many as it from Syria. Almost 1,000 from Congo. We're bringing in from Sudan, South Sudan. Burma, tremendous amount from Burma. You, you saw yesterday, Ann Corcoran, if you haven't listened to the show from yesterday, Listen to it. It's episode 542. Um, Burmese, they're, we're bringing in the Rayungya, the, the, the Muslims from there. Why does everyone have to be Muslim? I'll tell you why. There's a dirty little secret that there's a couple things I want you to talk about 
when you go to your mayors, your county councilmen, your county commissioners, and your governor, there's a couple of points I want you to make. You know, when they start talking about our history and tradition of all oh, refugees and this and that, there's something that you need to remember. The entire system is obsolete. And here's why. So what happened was there was once a time where we had a lot of religious strife. I mean, this has been an age-old problem of persecution. So we opened our doors to people who were genuinely persecuted and genuinely came and really loved America. They didn't just come because we have more economic opportunity or welfare or just like they're not going to be killed. It's not just about, oh, I don't want to be killed. I love America. So we've had that with the first generation, not the current ones, first crop of Cubans. We had that with the Soviet Russian Jews. Um, they loved Reagan. I told you about that story. Um, a lot of them, the kids don't even know Russian because the parents so adamantly hated the Russian language. Um, you had that with some of the Viet Vietnamese earlier on, fleeing communism. What you have today is a remarkable geopolitical phenomenon that is really forgotten by a lot of people. And that is that, for the most part, religious persecution is over. Religious warfare is over for the first time in history. Every religion gets along with each other. Um, Northern Ireland with the Catholics and Protestants was kind of the last shoe to drop. They made peace. It's held. Christians and Catholics and um, uh, Protestants don't fight. Christians and Jews don't fight. Buddhists and Hindus don't fight. Hindus and Christians, Buddhists and Jews. And, you know, um, Israel has a great relationship with India. Uh, everyone gets along very well, except for one religion. See, they like to decompartmentalize a lot of things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Chechnyan situation, the Burmese Rayungya persecution, the um, Kashmir. Like each thing has its own local flavor. Like it's a, but no, um, Chechnya is uh, Muslims fighting Eastern Orthodox. Israel and Palestinians are Muslims fighting Jews. Uh, Kashmir is Muslims fighting Hindus. Rayungya is not a one-way persecution. If anything, it's more the Muslims fighting the Buddhists. Okay, so it's one thing going on. Now you'd say, all right, so then the only refugees we really have are victims of Muslims. And what's ironic is, ironically, this was the last generation, that's what it was, where you still had Jews and Christians living in the Middle East, albeit they were being persecuted. So they were, you know, that's legitimate refugee status. And what's funny is some of these same dirtbag organizations that sued the president over his order prior prioritizing Christians in Syria, they actually themselves advocated it because this is not about, oh, our tradition and being nice. This is all a moneymaker, um, the, the tail wagging the dog. These organizations are justifying their existence when there's no such thing pretty much in the world anymore as a traditional refugee or that it makes sense to resettle. So previously, they used to have something called the Lautenberg Amendment, which highest the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society used to push for, where basically they would funnel um, 
Iranian Jews and maybe the Bahis, I guess, or Christians, I think, um, from Iran into Austria because we didn't have direct diplomatic relations with them since since uh, 79. So they did it through Austria and they'd bring them in. And and they used to I, I, I once spoke to a representative from Hyas and they would openly brag about this, how they would ask them, when did you come to Jesus? If they're a Christian, they would make sure the guy's Jewish. I mean, they it, they picked out the religion because that they had enough of them to justify their resettlement. But then something happened the last 20 or so years, really accelerating the last decade. You don't really have any Jews or Christians anymore because the Muslims either kicked them all out or slaughtered them. So all you have now are Muslims fighting each other, which is not refugees. It's just civil wars. And they're both problematic. And we bring them here to cause problems, but they're not legitimate refugees. So the only thing they have left now is either violent African clans that are just pagan or nothing. They're not Muslim. So that's Congo, some of these other places, or Muslims. That's all we're getting. You're not going to get, uh, you know, Christian conservatives from France and Germany and Great Britain being persecuted by, by the liberals there. I mean, that, that we're not bringing in. It's all that ilk. And even if you're more of an open borders person in general, that you want a lot of immigration, but you would have to admit that if you look geopolitically what's taking place, the traditional refugee thing where there's so much nostalgia and emotion behind it, it really doesn't apply nowadays. And, you know, for a while, I used to go on Sean Hannity's show with this guy who ran what's called Project Nineveh. He would go and just help the um, Assyrians and the Azidis. And he told me, like, you know, a lot of people ask, well, why aren't we bringing in the Christians? They don't really want to come. They, they want to be resettled. They were resettled in, in the Iraqi Kurdistan, 15 miles north of where they were. Um, they never really wanted to come. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it's these parasitic groups that are justifying this, their own existence. So, so don't fall into that trap. The other thing I want you guys to mention is that don't allow your local officials to get away with this point. Meaning, we have taken in a record number of Central Americans who are refugees in all but name only. So you can't double dip by saying, oh, we need to bring in more refugees when we're already getting them. That's the other point. But here we have Doug Duncy. Doug Duncy. It's utter clown. And meanwhile, this is the guy who just... um allowed in-state tuition for illegal aliens in his own home state. It's never enough. 630,000 estimated illegal aliens and anchor babies in the state. That's a population of foreign invaders that is greater than the size of any single colony at the time of our founding. Over 10% of the state's public school population is composed of illegal alien children according to Pew, costs $2.4 billion for a state that doesn't have a lot of money. John Lott had a comprehensive study of 30 years of prison data in Arizona, and he concluded that illegal immigrants in Arizona are at least 142% more likely to be convicted of a crime. They're more likely to be convicted of a serious violent crimes, at least 163%, more likely for first-degree murder, 168% more likely for second-degree murder, 190% more likely for manslaughter. 
and that they're more likely to commit, commit sexual offenses against minors, sexual assault, drunk driving, kidnapping, and armed robbery. And yet Doug Duncy wants more refugees. We don't have enough refugees from illegal immigrants. But to this day, not a single Republican governor has come out against re resettlement when Trump gave them the ball so they could do this. I ask you again, what are we conserving? What are we conserving? Guns? I would have told you gun, guns is the one thing. They've gone backwards on that. They've given that issue to the left. The only issue is tax rates. Now, look, we're already at the end of the show here. And this is a whole show in itself. But in many respects, that's a negative, not a positive. Don't get me wrong. Lower taxes are better all around for everyone. But if you're going to have low tax, fiscal, and cultural Marxism, which is what we have, it's worse than anything. And I'll tell you why. Let's talk about it at an individual level and a corporate level. We'll go corporate first. Corporate tax rates down to 20%. That's the one thing the big corporations care about. What they do is they take, they pocket the one thing that Republicans have given them, and they turn around and join with the Democrats on every other thing and serve as the enforcers of cultural Marxism. So not that I support higher taxes, but what it's done, meaning the idea is it has to come with the other issues. And it's not just the fact that the corporations are supporting refugees and illegal immigration and jailbreak for criminals and the homosexual agenda and the transgender this and the transgender that. You know, I tweeted out about my broken, stupid whirlpool um, dryer. Appliances don't work anymore, thanks to the decivilization agenda. And someone sent me a link of... Um, uh, what do you call it? Um, Whirlpool Pool and all these organizations are, are pushing transgenderism. I mean, every one of them. But it's not just cultural issues and, and security and immigration. Fiscal issues, too. They support individual welfare. They're supporting Obamacare. They support most regulations that box out competition. It's just a very small, narrow set of fiscal issues that they're with us. And those are the only things Republicans respond to. And they're like, all right, we got what we want. No, I want to make you fight for it. And then it's true on an individual level. You know, we talk a lot about tax rates. You go to Europe, Europe really has high tax rates. I mean, you know, France, I believe, already after $90,000 of income, middle class, not like a million dollars, 90,000. It's something like a 50%, 60% tax rate. In America, the tax rates, because that's the one thing they've conserved, are really very low. Now, I know some of you are going to say, what do you mean, Daniel? I pay a lot in taxes. Look, I understand when you add up, depending on where you live, certain places, local and state, and you, know, you add up everything, fees, it does add up. But I'm just saying, if you look at federal income tax, and I know we do have payroll taxes, but it really is, it's gotten lower and lower and lower over the years, much less compared to any other country. If you look at the effective tax rate, you can't look at the tax rates, the effective tax rates. So people earning under 20,000, it's negative 10%, meaning they're making money. 20,000 to 50,000 income, 1.2% effective tax rate. Uh, this is from the Tax Foundation, by the way. Um, great charts there. Check it out on their website. 
50,000 to 75,000 income. These are either individuals or family units. They're, these are tax units, 7.1%. 75 to 100,000. That's you know, a lot of the middle class, 8.7%. And then even 100,000 to 250,000. So roping in the broad remainder of the middle class, 12.3% effective tax rate. It's not until you get to 250 to a million in income, you get 20.5% and then a 29% tax rate on over a million. So the only people who pay a significant amount of taxes really are the very wealthy. And even then, it's much less than in Europe. And those are the ones that Republicans are too scared to really cut taxes significantly. Ironically, Democrats yesterday in the House Ways and Means Committee just marked up a massive um, tax cut for these people to get rid of the salt, um, the cap on the salt deduction. So if you remember, the tax bill limited the state and local tax deduction. So, you know, wealthy people living in big blue areas um, can't write that off anymore. Now, to offset it, they claim to bring back the top nominal rate, marginal rate, um, what is that, 36.5% back to like 396 but the truth be told, it's going to be a cut for a lot of them. It's the most ironic thing for all the people, you know, and, and the answer is very simple. For all their talk about socialism, they're not really pure socialists. They're venture socialists. Their special interests want it. But my point is, what has this done? It's stifled a tax rebellion of the taxpayer base. Our lives are too good. At the end of the day, our lives are too good. Don't get me wrong. Economically, I don't support raising taxes. I'm not going to be one of these, like some of my colleagues that get into this nationalism, populism, like, oh, because Republicans have been only about tax cuts and not about cultural issues. So I'm going to be, I'm going to support tax increases. No, I'm not going like that. I'm just telling you to only preserve and conserve low tax rates, but not with anything else. All that is done is it's numbed us, meaning if you're going to have European style fiscal and cultural Marxism and open borders, you know what? Give us the European tax rates so people will fight. This, this obviates the need for anyone to fight, and that's part of the problem. Now, in Europe, there's no sense of freedom, so they're not fighting over it because they're used to it. But I think if you, in, 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 if you allow Democrats, I'm not saying necessarily to do this, but it's kind of the chaos theory. If Democrats succeeded in doing this, guess what? We would have a massive rebellion, but Democrats aren't stupid. This is the one thing they won't touch. Notice even all their plans, they're not going like this fact. Forget about people like earning $20,000, $50,000, but even one hundred dollars to $250,000, the effective tax rate of 12.3%, that is not going to change under a single Democrat. They're not stupid. They're not going to rope in those people. What the Democrats have successfully done, and Republicans have joined them just as much, is perpetuating socialism on the backs of primarily debt, because other countries can't really do that like we could with our treasuries because of the prestige of our, our, tre our treasuries. And then a little bit, which is the top 1%, we really kind of tax them. That's where all the money is. Um, and they, they just left everyone alone. Democrats used to, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they were for taxing everyone, and they got killed on that. Reagan slaughtered them on that so they got smart and they're like well you know what why anger the massive majority of the tax base when we could just play class warfare against the one percent and then anyway we'll just service it with debt we don't need tax revenue i mean that ship has sailed
Um, our spending has nothing to do with tax revenue anymore. I mean, that was Reagan's era. The thought was, you know, you go and um, before deficit spending became a big thing, if you go and cut taxes, you're also going to limit government. That ship has sailed. So we basically have big socialist government with cultural Marxism, open borders, um, the homosexual agenda, and low tax rates. And all that's done is it's allowed the corporations to then fight us on every other issue um, without having to, you know, basically choose a side and fight Democrats on taxes and a couple of regulatory issues. And it's taken the broad base of American taxpayers and it's made them happy. So, you know, they, they, they got their iPhones, they got their products. Tax rates are relatively low compared to the world. All right, you know, I think it's stupid what they're doing on, on the green Marxism and the bad appliances and the jailbreak and the open borders and the refugees. But what am I going to do about it? No, you need to stand and fight. So that is your homework. I want you guys to determine. Let me know. Is there a single issue Republicans have conserved? We've gone over time here. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. Send me your suggestions to dharowitz at blazemedia.com. Link to our YouTube. Um, like our YouTube page. Subscribe to our YouTube page at Conservative Review YouTube. Send this show to 50 of your friends, neighbors, and relatives. Let's start a real movement to conserve universal American values. Thank you, and God bless.